You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is uh, Meditation and Attachment, d- Deepening Your Practice. It is October 8th, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Time. And tonight we're talking about, um, I'm going to be slightly distracted uh, uh, because I uh, still haven't been able to figure out how to turn off the waiting room. Uh, this We might have to uh, actually replace the link and then send it out again. But um, Tonight we're talking about compassion practice for difficult people. Um, it's interesting always to consider difficult people. When I was in Myanmar, the Sayadaw said from the front of the room, I don't know what it is about the people from the West that they just can't admit it. When we say difficult people, what we mean is enemies, uh, which I thought was hilarious. He said, you just can't admit that you have enemies. Uh, and uh, um, so he, would, he was very happy to teach better practice for enemies but he thought that difficult people as a description was unworthy of the practice. Um, I have often talked about this as a a no-fault situation. You have your conditioning, they have their conditioning. Um, When the two conditionings meet up, often there's a friction that creates an unpleasantness around it. Difficult people, of course, could be in any of the, the categories of closeness to you. It could be your uh, A person, your B person, your C person, your D person. And often the higher up they are on the scale of intimacy and the closeness, the more challenging it is to have them in the difficult category. Sometimes they move back and forth from the difficult category. Difficulties of, with people can be resolved uh, unless it pushes you into a place of uh, something happening that's unforgivable to you. So this isn't necessarily something that is unforgivable in the universal sense of it or uh, God's judgment of what's unforgivable, but something that causes the uh, epistemic trust that you might form with another person to be broken or at least to be damaged in an area that and you uh, are unable to repair it or to come back into a place of trust with them epistemic trust you may recall is uh, that you trust that the person is telling you the truth and you trust that what they're telling you is meant to be helpful to you Without that epistemic trust in place, we have a tendency not to take in the information that the other person is offering. It becomes difficult to learn from them and to share with them intimately because we don't feel safe and we don't rely on what they say to us. Um, This often triggers these very deeply held experiences uh, from our earliest conditioning. Epistemic trust is formed initially between the the caregiver and the infant, so your infant self with your caregiver. 
and we do really do uh, it has the circumstances have to be really extraordinary for a child not to trust the person that's taking care of them it doesn't matter really what the care is like uh, it has to be so extremely bad for a child to abandon their caregiver um, that most of the time they don't and they accommodate all of the different kinds of responses from the caregiver in early childhood until they get to puberty when uh, the biology changes. So you go from that child's brain, which is filled with these unconnected axions that just can absorb uh, information at an amazing uh, rapid rate to this radical pruning back to the barest scaffolding of what's already connected so you lose that capacity to learn so quickly but it really boosts your cognitive ability so you're able to uh, think in a way that was not possible before and it's then that you can begin to evaluate whether the deals that you made in childhood uh, to be in the family system that you were in or in your interest uh, or not. If you decide that they were in the caregiver's interest at your expense, then the epistemic trust is broken and it's very hard to, to repair it or replace it. And one of the, the problems with uh, adolescence is that uh, it tends to be a very generalizing uh, rejection of uh, the capacity to trust. And so it becomes across the board rather than oriented specifically to uh, the person who's violated the trust or broken it. So depending on your conditioning and how um, uh, intact that capacity to trust was when you come through that process of maturation will also uh, be a part of this uh, uh, managing and uh, coping with the difficulties that other people can present to you. If the uh, trust is broken in, in ways that are unforgivable, and what I mean by that is that you can't repair the trust, it may not be sufficient to break the relationship or cause you to want to withdraw from it. But these uh, unforgivable uh, actions on the part of the other person as you interpret them can accumulate to the point where uh, your experience of the other person is that they're irredeemable in which case the, the um, relationship is uh, not repairable and you need to move away from it so if we were to say uh, that if somebody is considered irre irredeemable, they might be considered an enemy, um, somebody who might be actively attempting to cause you harm or indifferent to, your, indifferent to you and your needs as they uh, proceed to fill their own. Um, this is a category of difficult. Um, I noticed that in the political climate of our times in this country, it's very polarized and uh, actions are uh, um, uh, 
extreme and that each side seems to find the other side has become irredeemable and that it's a succession of unforgivable actions on each side and each side uh, is abandoning the other. So there's this uh, examination that happens um, in the values that you hold. On the Buddhist path, of course, we are talking about an ethical path and the decision to become a good person at the beginning of the path and then to adopt these ethical stances, the, the, to undertake the practice, to refrain from causing harm through killing, to undertake the practice, to refrain from causing harm through taking what is not freely given, to undertake the practice of refraining from causing harm through sexual conduct, to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through speech, to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through uh, consumption, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, or addiction. But one of these, these political point of views that are so extremely different when the concentration camps were built on the southern border of our country and when children were forcibly taken from their parents and put in cages, uh, when women were forcibly sterilized by that apparatus, uh, with the reports of tens of thousands of incidences of child rape in those facilities, this is uh, an unforgivable action in my view. Um, and uh, so we, I'm in this position where really uh, the people who support that particular uh, political structure move into this category of being engaged in actions which I find unforgivable. And as these actions accumulate, uh, they move within me to a place of uh, incorrigibility, uh, really, of, of um, uh, the relationships themselves becoming unrepairable. As the Supreme Court begins to signal a withdrawal of gay rights, uh, the concerns over women's rights, all of these things that have over my lifetime been uh, so, so hard won to have them simply removed. Um, is uh, unforgivable. Now, when I talk about this, I, I'm saying that for me, in my experience, they become an, an unforgivable action in, in the sense that uh, if you support that, I, I find it uh, unbearable and can't forgive it. Um, and as these actions accumulate, I, I, I become, um, Um, even unwilling to. But the topic of conversation for tonight is compassion for difficult people. Nothing in the experience of my uh, un uh, finding uh, a lack of forgiveness relieves me of the obligation of compassion, which is the, I think, the conundrum for uh, the category of working with difficult people. 
we often have this uh, a sense that uh, perhaps everything should be forgivable, but it it is uh, then uh, philosophically perhaps true, but then when you touch into your own experience and your own conditioning, what is true for you in this circumstance? Um, we have our individual karma and uh, the intention and actions that we take to move forward uh, in, in, a, in an ethical way, uh, reducing uh, more and more the karmic uh, trails that we leave behind us until um, Dan Brown, one of my teachers, says that your actions are, are like writing on the surface of water. They, live, they leave no trace behind them. So there's no accumulation of karma following you. But we also live with this collective karma. One of the things about uh, engagement in these uh, challenging times is that we cannot escape from our participation in the collective karma and that the outcomes of that co collective karma are inescapable for all of us. And if you look at the nature of uh, our planet and uh, the, the pandemic that we're in, which is a, a kind of outgrowth of the climate uh, uh, crisis that we're facing and uh, the actions of uh, how we operate our civilizations in the world and the effect that it has, this affects all of us regardless of what our participation is. And so we can't withdraw from this conversation with the community of people. Um, that is to say, we can withdraw from the conversation of the community of people, but we can't escape the karma that comes from the, the collective action. Um, and so we have all of these conundrums in this practice. Uh, since you can't escape the outcome of the collective karma, um, what is the obligation then to participate in it in a way that is useful in, in uh, all of our, our, our collective being here? Often in the Buddhist community or about the Buddhist community, there's a complaint that we, we don't engage. We, we, we uh, slip into this kind of uh, passivity. Uh, we, we wave our hand and say, well, karma is complex and difficult to understand. I can't really uh, predict the outcome. Uh, I need to uh, withdraw from that. Um, the Christian tradition is, was so organized around charity is one of the, the activities that they do and that's often missing in uh, Buddhist communities. This outreach and uh, attempt to uh, help uh, the suffering poor and so on. So we, we're here and attempting to practice uh, compassion for difficult people. At the same time, seeing uh, and understanding the 
actions that they take and the reproduction uh, repercussions of that as we can understand them. Um, one of the things that's interesting about America, of course, is that, I, I, you know, I'm trying to remember the statistic, but it's almost as if there are three guns for every person in the country. Um, it's an amazing an accumulation of hardware. Um, in California, um, and this may not be true of other parts of the country, but it seems that the, the people on the left and the people on the right are equally armed um, so that, it, that uh, it, it's not gonna be an easy um, um, conflagration if that's what happens. Um, this morning you may have read uh, that there was a, uh, a terrorist group that was arrested in Michigan for plotting to kidnap the, the governor of Michigan um, and then to uh, begin to target police in an attempt to spark a, a civil war. Maybe it's only living in California where that seems like a far-fetched idea um, that people don't want to, to charge off into civil war. Um, when you look at the nature of politics, uh, these kinds of violent revolutions typically uh, result in a much more extreme right movement of, of uh, the uh, authority once it's reestablished. And um, if you look at the, the history of these kinds of things, the uh, established military and government control tends to overreact in an extreme way to these kinds of violent uh, provocations. Uh, if we look at Myanmar, for instance, um, the uh, genocide there, the um, incident that caused the military there to push nearly a million people over the border into Bangladesh was uh, a police station was attacked and 12 police officers were killed, which then gave political cover for the military to move um, people out. These activities, according to the UN Charter, are considered genocide. Um, and I think that that's quite clear, even though the military denies that that's what happened. They simply were keeping the peace. The year before the military attempted to push the same number of people out of the country, but the Bangladeshi army sat at the border and shot them as they attempted to cross the border. And the, mili the Miramar military relented and uh, the people returned to their villages. The second year, they burned the villages behind the villages as they, they left, so there was no place to come back to. If you uh, were paying attention to the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the use of big data, uh, you see that the uh, Miramar military was one of their clients and they 
created a, a social media campaign to get the population of Myanmar to support the military action. Myanmar is a Buddhist country and uh, it's fascinating in one of the ways that they uh, uh, leave you is they say, um, did I take good enough care of you while we were together, which is so touching. And, um, when I was there, uh, I would ask the cab drivers what kind of meditation that they did, and then they would talk uh, usually at length about who their Sayadaw was and what kind of practice that they were doing and how helpful it was in their lives. And uh, can you uh, imagine uh, asking your Uber or Lyft driver what kind of meditation they do <laughs> and see what the answer might be? And the population is overwhelmingly in favor of the military action in a Buddhist country where the first precept is to refrain from causing harm through killing. In this country, the concentration camps that we built on the southern border of the country and the separation of children, when they separated the children from their parents, they didn't uh, collect the data on who the parents were. But to do that is a violation of the UN Charter and is considered genocide. The forced sterilization of women, which is happening in those concentration camps on our border, according to the UN uh, Charter, is genocide. And so we, we live in this country where we're actively engaged and the tax dollars that are collected are uh, causing genocide. And uh, that to me is unforgivable. Um, and so we come up to our election and um, we need to act in the world because we are a part of the collective karma and there's no way to escape that. And the outcome of this, this collective desire of our whole country uh, will be, depending on the depth of the corruption, uh, an outcome that we will then uh, carry as our collective karma. So um, this is the space in which we're practicing compassion for difficult people. How do we hold that? I am uh, thinking about this and wondering how to frame this in a way that's productive, that we can move forward in a way that will be helpful. I see, uh, and it, it seems to me pretty easy to see how much suffering there is and how that suffering distorts people's perception. And, um, how would you make sense of building concentration camps and taking children from their parents and putting them in chain link fence cages? Have you seen the pictures of that? It's utterly heartbreaking to me and unforgivable. And I don't even want to forgive it. Nonetheless, I have this obligation to respond in a compassionate way to the people who are suffering and doing this. And how do I do that? 
these are these are what I think the questions are of practicing compassion for difficult people. So in the formal practice of compassion, we are uh, causing the mind state to arise so that we can hold the experience of somebody else's suffering. So it's, it's a development of a willingness to do that. In the practice of compassion, you're attuning to somebody, you're allowing an empathetic connection to form between you. You're bringing your skills to uh, emotionally regulate the empathetic experience of them. And then as that is uh, shared with them empathetically, they get a, a more regulated experience of that. And this process of this exchange of empathy back and forth uh, is meant to be regulating, meant to be helpful to the other person. And we need to monitor that so that we can hold the space uh, and not become so dysregulated by it that we are no longer capable of compassion in that moment and we disconnect into a sympathetic place. Compassion. Compassion's near enemy is sympathy. So the difference between sympathy and empathy uh, is uh, the difference between compassion and sympathy. Sympathy is an internal experience that you generate within yourself. Compassion is a shared empathetic experience with the other person and allowing the other person to experience you. The near enemy, the, the near enemy being sympathy, the far enemy is cruelty. And so often we see in these actions that are being taken, this extreme cruelty. And so how then do we bring compassion to the experiences of such extreme cruelty and not become so overwhelmed by the experience of the cruelty that we uh, are knocked off balance and then are no longer capable of uh, compassion. I think that uh, we're experiencing in, in, in people who engage in these extreme acts of cruelty, uh, an absence of the capacity for compassion. And so acting in a way that is compassionate is uh, holding up a working model of an alternative to cruelty and maybe a way out of cruelty. And as the, the internal capacity for compassion collapses, uh, often where we end up is in that cruel mind state. And then we're engaged in actions that are cruel and generating that karma. So we have this personal obligation to ourselves to practice compassion in, in the face of cruelty because it's a, uh, inoculation really to our own uh, internal collapse and uh, our own expression of cruelty. Uh, 
I think it is important to pay attention to the, that capacity so that you can slip out of the, the need uh, to generate compassion into sympathy if you're getting so dysregulated by the experience that you can't hold uh, the suffering of the other person. Your uh, personal karma uh, uh, is affected by the uh, unwillingness or the inability to hold uh, compassion uh, should you slip into cruelty. And the collective karma that we all are subject to also has, um, is affected by that. So you have your self-interest in maintaining compassion, but you also have the interests of the people that are close to the people that you love and that you care for to practice this. Um, admittedly, it is challenging to do so. So in the formal practice that we're going to do now, we pick a person to work with. Um, and uh, I would suggest that you pick somebody that is not uh, irredeemable, that has not uh, accumulated a lot of uh, your inability to forgive them and work with somebody who may be simply irritating at times so that you can have the experience of actually being able to hold compassion in the face of that. Um, and then ramp up to where you can hold the, hold a compassionate experience of somebody that you consider irredeemable. Um, I think of the political systems that we have and, and how they operate and uh, I know that uh, that there's been unprecedented demonstrations uh, for Black Lives Matter for um, women's rights, for uh, gay rights, um, for the small communities that uh, are in danger uh, because of this um, extreme right-wing movement that we have in this country now. Um, and I was thinking about how one, how would I would frame that in a way, um, mainly by uh, completely withdrawing energy from the, the negative side of things and, and pushing it more into the positive side of things. Uh, and so what I was thinking was that the, uh, the movement is really between people who want an equal society and people who want an unequal society. And to move in the direction of, uh, and put energy into uh, activities that will generate a, a more equal society and put less and less energy into uh, activities that generate an unequal society. I think as I do an analysis of this, that the Republican and the Democratic parties are both uh, interested in unequal societies. And so pushing them in the direction of more equal or an equal society where the, the laws apply to everybody. And that there aren't these caveats or distinctions and uh, the treatment is the same. 
I don't know that uh, there's ever been a shortage of ans answers. The answers seem quite abundant and uh, ways to work this out seem quite abundant. What is often missing is the willingness to do that, the willingness to give up privilege, the willingness to give up advantages that you might have um, and to move in a direction of, of balance and um, civility. Um, but the, uh, it can be so easy to get swept up in anger and then act in a way that uh, creates this uh, constant uh, working out of negative karma. So, um, any uh, responses to that before we do some practice? I, I'm probably preaching to the choir, so. <laughs> All right. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So how did that go? Hey George, this is a uh, Tim. I can Hi. see how how I'm uh, unwilling to uh, to create enemies. I have plenty of difficult people, but. I'm unwilling to accept that I work with enemies all day long. <laughs> you're, you're a good Western man. Well, what I didn't mention, but I some for some reason pops into my mind now. We um, have this uh, dilemma with uh, people coming over the border. Um, the New York Times uh, said a couple of weeks ago that the um, The climate clock is going faster than they thought, so they moved it up by 50 years. Um, and uh, that they calculate that 19% of the globe will become too hot to be habitable and that the people who live there are going to have to move. Um, Al Weiwei, uh, who is a Chinese artist, made a film about human uh, um, uh, refugees I think he called it human flow or something like that. And in the film, he says that there are 60, currently 68 million 
refugees uh, seeking to move north. But according to the New York Times, uh, that 19% that of the globe that is going to be uninhabitable is home to 4 billion people and that they're going to have to move north or south. And so 68 million is a mere trickle in terms of who's coming and how are we then going to uh, make space for them. It's um, part of our uh, path. So not making enemies of them might be a good way to do it. <laughs> Someone else? Uh, George, it certainly is a complex issue um, with the flow uh, coming to the border. And I thought there was an appropriate uh, uh, techni technique to where you, someone would be vet, they would vet, vet the people, the, the family, maybe do the fingerprinting and then link the fingerprints with the children. I mean, that would make sense. That way you would keep them together. And then they are, supposed to go before a judge. So I think they are given an appointment to, to let the judge decide of the federal uh, court. But, and then also the, the, you know, the protections we have for people, for, you know, children and, uh, and mothers and protecting that we have in, you know, LA and all these counties in the states. I would think that should apply to the people coming there too. They would have a right to be protected and not get, uh, uh, raped or molested, uh, or this, this is horrifying, this sterilization. I mean, it just, I would think the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights is probably involved in this thing, um, you know, from, I have to read more about it though, mm -hmm. on this situation, yeah. You may have seen the news report that uh, children as young as two years old were expected to provide their own legal counsel or their own legal representation. And so the things that you're suggesting are not being done, hmm. fortunately. Allegedly, this was started in the Obama administration because from that law enforcement standpoint, they say, well, if, if a parent uh, commits a crime, then we have to have child protective services separate the children. So that mentality that like with the LAPD arresting some parents, then they would they have to take them into custody and then bring the children into child protective services. I don't know if that theory or that reasoning uh, would even apply. Maybe that does apply in a weird kind of way in the federal thing. Um, yeah. We, um, well, the situation, the way that it is now, uh, meets the uh, UN definition of genocide, which I'm not sure is what we had in mind if we set that up the way that it is. And it has been four years of it and, and really no, uh, no significant change has happened, um, even with demonstrations. Um, uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, uh, an accumulation uh, of these kinds of things that is just exhausting in a way. Uh, 
There's so many of them. There's also the for-profit uh, prison uh, angle where there people are, it's part of Wall Street and they're building these for-profit prisons. And I think they're involved in doing some of the housing here and there's using the tax money and there's profiting. And uh, I think I heard there's some, you know, big people that are on the boards of those for-profit private prisons. Okay, yeah, no. That's another angle. Totally. You had to bring up prisons. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm a prison uh, abolitionist. So uh, the 5% um, of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners. It's just an amazing uh, thing we do in this country. Um, My sense is that we need to actively resist this in, in, in any way that we can, whenever we can, and at the same time, uh, not allow our minds to slip into cruelty, to be able to hold that space, that compassionate space. I ask Someone, about, sure. About, okay. about what? The meditation. Yeah, absolutely. What are you for? <laughs> before I have to start practicing compassion practice for all of you guys. <laughs> um, you brought up that it's important to understand the concept of mind state. And so I would like to make sure that I'm understanding yeah, I feel like when I'm doing other meditations, I'm looking for physical sensation or um, internal information. And so when you're focusing on a mind state, what, what, what does that look like or feel like? Uh, the Buddha described it as uh, understanding uh, um, uh, whether the mind is equanimous or whether the mind is distorted by a mind state. Um, so he used the metaphor of a mirror, the, a bowl of water. We don't see things directly. We experience them through this process of making conceptual reality. So we have the ultimate reality, which is the sensing experience. So object that can be sensed has contact with the capacity to sense it. The consciousness of the sensing experience arises. It's evaluated for urgency. And then compared to the database uh, of previously sensed things and imagination, and if there's a close enough match, then the undifferentiated, unattached, unfixated sensing experience becomes conceptual reality. So all of that sensing experience is woven together into how you um, imagine the world to be. Um, Dan uh, says that you take in the data and then you project outward the fixated world so that it's coming internally out. And it has the appearance of the world. If the mind is completely clear, then it's a fairly accurate representation in the way that we can know things. But if there's a mind state there, then it's just the conceptual reality is distorted by that mind state. So you might think of it as a filter so the white, the white light is coming and then you put a red filter in and then it's red, right? 
um, he he said that the you know the hindrances are common distortion, so craving or lust. It's as if the water of the bowl were dyed a bright color, so that the image that's reflected off the surface is infused with this bright color of lust. Uh, have you ever looked at somebody that you find incredibly attractive and they kind of shimmer? That's that distortion of lust um, or craving. So as an, um, sorry to interrupt, so would compassion then be a filter also? It is, yeah. And it's distorting. And so you bring up another topic, which is some are considered uh, afflictive and some are beneficial distortions. And so you distort the world, which allows you to be willing to hold the suffering experience of someone else. And, and so when you're picturing a difficult, difficult or any person, um, I feel like I had to imagine, so, so when I was doing it, at first I started with an easy person, which is my child. And then in order to stimulate compassion, I pictured him when he's upset. And so that makes me want to, mm -hmm. you know, um, and then as soon as that sort of is there, then switch to the difficult person and try and maintain that openness. But I feel like I also have to picture that difficult person requiring compassion, I guess, or sort of, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of imagination involved or, you know, sort of, you know but, what I mean? Okay, yeah. So, um, in some sense, uh, what you're describing is uh, needing to generate the mind state over and over again. Is that what you're, what you mean by imagination? Well, sort of, I don't know. I guess that's why I'm making sure I understand what the mind state of compassion is. Um, you know, uh, when I, uh, first really understood this, I worked with anger, how the mindset of anger was very clear to me and how it was very distorting and I could make sense of that. And then gradually uh, developed the other mind, the awareness of the mind states. Um, in the attachment side of things, uh, mind states are developed in you if your caregivers constantly asked you what was happening with you. I'm having a hard time figuring out what's going on with you. What's going on with you? And then, the, the, then you would have to explain that to them. But in order to explain what was going on with you, you'd have to evaluate your, your perspective, your mind states to be able to describe it. And so some of us have a leg up in terms of doing that because we had all of those, that constant inquiry in childhood that allowed us to develop the skill just at the beginning of life. But if that didn't happen, then you have to be, um, inquisitive about uh, whether the mind is equanimous and settled or whether it's inclined in a particular way. And then figure out how to trigger that to happen. So using the imagination to trigger it to happen is a good way to do it. But then once it's there, can you begin to investigate how it changes uh, conceptual reality so that you can recognize that, oh, that's the mindset of compassion. That's how, the, that's how it changes things. Um, and then have some dexterity in being able to do that on the fly. Uh, when we were in Myanmar, uh, we spent 
three days just on easy people. And the Sayadaw's instruction was to go through everybody we know and uh, practice for an hour for each of them until we develop a short list of three or four people that when we think of them, the, the thought of them naturally inclines the mind toward the mind state that we're looking for. Uh, so that when you're out in the world and uh, on the fly, you can think of them and bring up that mind state. Um, but as you get more and more sensitive to the idea of mind states, you can begin to see them come and go the same way that if you have good dexterity with emotion in the body, you can feel the emotion coming and going in the body. Well, one of the main differences though, is that the feeling states in the body have a physical sensation to them. View doesn't have a physical sensation. It's just affects the way that we create conceptual reality. And so that's what we're concerned with in terms of understanding which one is there. Is that helping? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Once you concentrate on the mind state long enough, then PT arises. PT does have a physical sensation. And in the instructions for Vipassana jhana, uh, or high concentration states around uh, insight practice, well, um, or samadhi, maybe a better word, um, you, pick an object of meditation, but as soon as the PT arises, you switch to the PT because it's a sensation that's easier to track. And so the same can be done in this, this kind of practice. The object is the, the mind state, but as soon as you become concentrated enough that if the physical energy of PT arises, you can switch to that as the object of meditation because it's easier to track. All right, good. Someone else? George, is there a way to externally verify the mind state? <laughs> Maybe relationally? Um, I mean, I feel like I have a pretty good sense. I just, you know, would really be devastated if I've been practicing terror. <laughs> <mind state. laughs> um, for me, mainly, it's what, practicing a lot. You get used to how the world looks. And so that seems to be it. So if I practice meta for a long time, everybody starts looking really beautiful. Uh, and, it's a, and it makes the world very pleasant to be in because it's filled with these extraordinarily beautiful people that I'm not practicing meta doesn't appear to me that way. Compassion just is this, it, it sort of relieves the, the reflexive pulling away from the suffering. Sorry to interrupt, just in terms of formal practice, is it with, you know, especially with eyes closed, um, my sense is it's a vibratory or some kind of, there is some sense to it. Um, is that not the PT? Well, yeah, I guess that arises later. Yeah. I don't typically have a physical sensation of just the view. It really is uh, learning how the world looks when, that, when you're holding that mind state. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm, maybe I'm wondering if it's easier to detect and practice with eyes open and maybe even relationally. 
certainly. I think the formal practice is particularly just about uh, training the mind to be willing to do it. And then you have to actually be in relationship to somebody else to actually engage in compassion. It's empathetic. It's, right. it's a requirement. Um, maybe uh, we can get somebody to build a, 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 a or as a, a, there's advances in tech, uh, a, a headband we can put on that will flash when we, uh, uh, or just let us know what the mind state is that we're having in the moment. <laughs> hey, George. Hey, Arthur. Uh, on that, I just want to offer that. Um, <laughs> So there was a time when I was at Spirit Rock for a month and in the kitchen there, there is a statue of the Buddha uh -huh. who just had this expression that depending on the day when I look at him, it would seem to me that it that he's having a different emotion. Uh -huh. <laughs> Some days like a happy sort of, and sometimes not. So that was kind of, I was like, okay, that seems a reflection of a mind state rather than what's actually there. Right, absolutely. Good. Is everybody all right? All right, good. Um, Saturday uh, is the third of the day longs on the level one meditation and attachment. And we'll do some IPF, uh, ideal parent figure at the end of the day and um, mainly uh, a review of material. Um, the week after that is uh, uh, a Dharma maps day long on Saturday. Uh, and we're gonna, it's mainly a practice day since I've covered the material completely. And so we'll practice uh, through the, the uh, knowledge of the miseries into reobservation, which is the 10th stage. Uh, the week after that, I think is the meditation and attachment for couples, which is a day long around collaborative relationships. Um, my new book is uh, in, coming out on the 14th, and so we have it on pre-sale until then. But I'm going to do a book reading on November 7th at 4.30 in the afternoon and talk about the, the reason that I made the book and uh, read from it, and then I can answer any questions you might have. Um, we're going to start a, a new level two Meditation and attachments in the, the beginning of December, and then at the end of December, we'll have a, a, a week-long virtual retreat. So that, that's what's coming up. Um, I offer this class on a Donna basis, which means I teach the class, and then I hope that you'll make a donation to help support me and also Metagroup. Uh, any amount is appreciated. Of course, if you're not resourced and can't do it, that's totally fine. We as a community will support your practice. But if you can do that, it is appreciated. And there is a link to make a donation, both on the website and also in the email that you would have gotten. Thank you for coming and really appreciate it. And we'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks, George. Thanks.